When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's Wednesday, the bairn has been shipped off to nursery, the pot of Yorkshire is on the go, and we're going to take a deep dive into the decade that we bizarrely call the noughties and to the football of its time. So get comfy. Myself, I've got a nice little fluffy yellow blanket with me on this crisp March afternoon. So this is the Noughties Nostalgia's podcast, and this is episode 34. On today's show, we've got Tottenham Hotspur with chartering their rise before Harry Redknapp took charge in 2008. We're going to Serie A and Italy for the 2003-04 season in the table never lies. But first, we've got to look at some World Cup qualification shocks as the international break is finally back. Before we start today's show, we'll do a little bit of admin. Um, If you'd like to give us a five-star review and follow and subscribe, whatever your podcast feed tells you to do, where you get your apps, because... Obviously, last week was our debut show, Audio Only, for the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, and we're continuing that trend in perpetuity. Every Wednesday, the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast will be on Apple, Spotify, Acast, pretty much anywhere where you, you get your podcasts, really. So, five-star review, follow, and subscribe would be very, very generous. I'd be very grateful of you. Let's kick off today's show. And we start with a memory. Holland coming up short in 2002, says George HS2706. And that came on a day, their biggest loss came on one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history, qualification history, September the 1st, 2001. Now English fans, they might remember it as the England 5, Germany 1 in Munich. Irish fans, though, will remember it for the 1-0 win on Lansdowne Road against the Dutch which was ultimately the difference between Ireland's qualification and the Dutch failing to qualify for a World Cup. Two points taken against the Portuguese and the Irish across four matches for the Netherlands was the result in disqualification for Louis van Gaal's Dutch side and Ireland going through to their first World Cup since 1994. Ireland would, of course, continue the trend that they'd had from tournaments in 1990 and 94 by reaching the 
knockout stages where they would, of course, go out to Spain on penalties. England, they, their win over Germany would be the difference between their qualification and not owing in part to another shock, which we'll talk about later on. We're uh, drawing to Greece, which David Beckham's free kick would be the difference between playoffs against Ukraine and qualification. And of course, it wouldn't be penalties, but a Ronaldinho free kick that spelled the end of their tournament in 2002, whilst Germany went on to bigger and better things, also losing to Brazil in the Far East. But that isn't the end for September the 1st, 2001. We've had Jason McAteer, we've had a Michael Owen hat-trick, but we have to go to CONCACAF and Honduras' 3-2 win over America through goals from Carlos Pavon and Milton Nunez. And this almost spelled the end for America going into the 2002 World Cup. America would register their best, still stands today, their best performance at a World Cup, getting to the quarterfinals where they would go down 1-0 to Germany in the Far East, but they almost didn't get there. The win, the loss at, um, at home to Honduras would ensure that their qualification would be hanging by a thread going into the final day and it would be sealed by a draw against Trinidad, which might not have been enough. But Honduras' loss in the Azteca Stadium against Mexico, losing 3-0, meant that America would go through not-so-similar memories for the 2018 qualification when America played Trinidad and Tobago in the final day on that one where they lost and, of course, wouldn't go to the World Cup Finals for the first time since 1990. Now, getting back to Germany in the 2002 World Cup qualification, all they had to do was win, and they had Finland. October the 6th, 2001, Germany played Finland at the same time as England played Greece, and we all seem to, it was English anyway, we seem to remember David Beckham's free kick being enough in a 2-2 draw, and it wouldn't have been in, wouldn't have been enough if Germany had just simply beaten Finland. Now, Germany have this quirky record against Finland where they didn't beat them away and obviously they wouldn't beat them at home on this day. And there's a, I think it was a 2010 World Cup qualification campaign where they couldn't beat them home and away either. So maybe that's uh, Germany's bogey team. If you can have a, if you can have a bogey team during the uh, international qualification campaigns, it's not really. For England, maybe it was Croatia for a time, for maybe a couple of years there. Turkey didn't, it, it was quite hard for England to get by in two, Euro 2004. And we go to Commebol and the South American stages. In the same same uh, qualification campaign, the 2002 campaign, Brazil had, um, well, without Ronaldo for a lot of it, obviously between the 98 and 2002 World Cups, Ronaldo would be hampered by several knee injuries and he had to come back to dig them out of the hole. But in November 2001, November the 7th to be precise, Brazil would go to the notoriously difficult La Paz and to Bolivia to get a result, but they would lose 3-1, which meant going into the final day that Brazil were only ahead of the playoff spot by a point. Paraguay were on 30, Brazil were on 27, and on the playoff spot were Uruguay on 26 and Colombia on 24, which meant a few days later, Brazil needed something to qualify for the World Cup. I mean, it's unfathomable to have Brazil not at a World Cup They've been at every World Cup, all 21. Um, Colombia's winning Paraguay plus Uruguay's draw against Argentina meant a draw was needed in Brazil's final match at home to Venezuela. Venezuela, notorious for being the only team in South America to not qualify for the World Cup. Brazil, of course, in 2002, would go on to win the tournament, beating aforementioned teams such as England and Germany on the way to their fifth World Cup crown, their last 
at the time of me speaking these words. Moving on to the 2006 World Cup qualification campaign, Lelouch has got a couple of a couple of suggestions here. The first of which we'll uh, start with, we'll kick things off with Northern Ireland beating England in 2005. Obviously, it was one of the dark days of Sven's reign, <laughs> not in a tournament. Obviously, David Healy would score the winner, but England safely topped the group. But it still remains a momentous occasion for Northern Ireland. Lelouch also describes the uh, Andorra winning their only match in their history against North Macedonia whilst Liechtenstein getting a point with Portugal. Sticking with 2006, though, France almost didn't qualify. They only conceded two goals, though, bizarrely, um, but they drew half of their games at home to Switzerland, Israel and Ireland and away versus Switzerland and Israel. And they're going into the last day, they needed a win, but they were admittedly playing Cyprus while Switzerland and Ireland were playing and drew out when a win would have earned them top spot, either of the teams really. And of course, back in 2009, who can forget? France almost been eliminated from the 2010 World Cup, but uh, Thierry Henry handled that problem, so to speak. And another team that almost didn't qualify for the 2006 World Cup. 2006 was a big one for uh, teams not going through. Team that's almost been eliminated before the tournament. Spain had to qualify via the playoffs. Almost didn't get there. Fortunately, though, they had San Marino in their final game week um, for the qualifications. Obviously, that amounts to uh, a bye, pretty much. Thankfully, Spain beat Bosnia and Spain were away to San Marino. The 6-2 aggregate win in Slovakia was enough for Spain to qualify for the 2006 World Cup. A World Cup was earmarked to be the end of their their tenure as... uh, Bridesmaids, never the brides, but of course, despite Fernando Torres, despite David Villa, uh, they would come up short in the last 16 to 1. Zinedine Zidane and France. Another team that would miss out would be Senegal in 2006. And Senegal obviously qualified for the 2002 World Cup, making it to quarterfinals. And it looked as though they were quite strong favourites to go through in their group, but they would lose in Togo 3 1 and uh, drew at home to Togo, and this was compounded with draws to Congo and Mali, and it was one of a few shocks in the African qualifications. The three Senegal's 3-0 win against Mali wasn't enough on the final day as Togo scraped a 3-2 win in Brazzaville against Congo to qualify for their one and only World Cup. A similar situation in another group was uh, Cameroon in 2006. Somewhat of a group of death, if you can get a group of death in uh, qualification for tournaments they were dealt Egypt and Ivory Coast Egypt would go on to win those three in a row African Nations Cups whilst Ivory Coast was seen as the best team in Africa at the time alongside Ghana both Ivory Coast and Ghana would qualify for 2006 which would be their both of their debut tournaments in the World Cup Ivory Coast won 3-1 in Sudan thanks to two Aruna Dindan goals whilst Egypt held Cameroon 1-1 which meant Ivory Coast will qualify for their first World Cup and Cameroon, the indomitable Lions, missed out for the first time since 1986. In the 90s and 2000s, Cameroon and Nigeria um, were probably the eminent team in Africa. They were the the only qualifiers for the knockout stage in the World Cups in 1994 and 98. Neither would make the knockout stage in 2002 and neither would make the tournament in 2006 as Nigeria drew in Gabon and Rwanda and drew at home to Angola. Angola needing a win in Rwanda to qualify as they had a better head-to-head record than Nigeria with Aqua scoring the 11th, the 79th minute goal. 
Angola going to their only World Cup and wouldn't finish rock bottom of their group unlike Togo, um, getting a draw against Mexico, getting a draw against Iran and finishing third almost could have been in the last 16 Angola against Argentina. Maybe that's a what if, a very far-fetched what if, but still. Coming back to Europe, and there's still a couple of shocks for 2006 World Cup to throw up. Um, we had first Denmark, who for me, with the, with the Loudrup brothers, they were one of the best teams around in the late 90s, early 2000s. Would obviously get knocked out by the mighty English in the 2002 World Cup, but let's not uh, talk about that. They, they had a great 98 World Cup as well, getting to the uh, quarterfinals iconic Brian Loudrup celebration but in November 2004 they drew in Georgia and in Tbilisi which was a difference between playoff and elimination whilst Ukraine finally qualified their string of almost qualifying Andrei Shevchenko finally getting to a World Cup Ukraine finally qualified outright with Turkey into the playoffs thanks to a final day 1-0 for the Turks in Albania and coming home to the home nation Scotland in 2006 missed out due to sloppiness, pretty much a home loss to Belarus, an early goal in Hamden for Belarus, and then draws away in Belarus and Moldova, which was eventually the difference between a playoff and elimination, and Norway would take their playoff spot but wouldn't qualify. And similar, similarly, Norway and Scotland, both in Group A in 98 World Cup, still waiting for that second uh, for that next World Cup qualification. Heading to the first World Cup of the 2010s, so technically we're still in the noughties here since qualification took place between 2007-2009. We've got a couple of teams that almost qualified in Portugal and Argentina. Portugal, a couple of nil-nils with Sweden and a stunning draw at home to Albania left them needing a win on the final day. And again, like Spain in 2006, they played quite a, a bottom feeder, no disrespect to Malta. Um, Portugal would win 4-0 and would bow out fairly early on in the last 16 to Spain, obviously, the eventual winners there. And Argentina, similar travails to Brazil in 2002, going to La Paz, notoriously difficult place to go to, high up in the uh, Bolivian mountains, getting thrashed 6-1. And Argentina won just two away games at um, Uruguay and Venezuela, also drew against Peru. So they were almost Diego Maradona, of course, in charge for the uh, World Cup here. And it left Argentina and Uruguay separated by a point going into the final game week in Montevideo. Argentina needing a point, but they claimed a late win, which meant Uruguay had to go through a playoff with Costa Rica to progress. Obviously, Uruguay would end up going to the World Cup in South Africa and went further than Argentina in the tournament, reaching the semi-finals but losing to the Dutch, whilst Argentina was steamrolled by uh, Yogi Löw's young German team. Two teams that didn't make it to South Africa, though, in what would be a home continent uh, was Egypt, the domineering force in Africa at the time in 2010. They, they would win their third African Nations Cup a few months before the tournament in South Africa, but a draw at home to Zambia on the first game week and exchanging of wins against Algeria led to a dramatic, to say the least, tie-breaking playoff against Sud in Sudan against Algeria. Um, both Algeria and Egypt tied on head-to-head. -head. Overall records were tied dramatically and Algeria would come out dominant in that one, winning 1-0 through Antayahia with the uh, goal. A lot of um, restlessness between the two countries to sue, uh, use, a, use a euphemism there in the lead-up to the playoff game. Easily the most dramatic uh, game in World Cup qualification history there. Perhaps 
Honduras and El Salvador might have something to say about that a few decades before that in a, a fully-fledged, well, mini-war. And Saudi Arabia and 2010, they almost uh, qualified as well, Saudi Arabia. Had a long line of uh, qualifying for World Cups, obviously. Stole our hearts in the 94 World Cup with that superb goal in the group stages. I think it was against Belgium or Morocco. I might be uh, getting teams mixed up there and uh, went to the last 16. The only time they would get to a knockout phase. Uh, they wouldn't qualify at all in 2010, the first first time they wouldn't be at a World Cup since 1990. They needed to be needed to beat North Korea to be certain of a place. North Korea had won 1-0 in Pyongyang in the reverse in February 2009, but that June, it was a stalemate. North Korea were only their second ever World Cup, whilst Saudi Arabia had to wait until 2018. North Korea, of course, losing all their games, but did get a goal against Brazil. So, will there be any shocks in this qualification period 2022 we're going to be qualifying for now let me know on our twitter account at what if underscore youtube if you think there'll be a stunning team not at the world cup in qatar next december as we stand so it's not that far off really european qualification for the tournament begins this week as i say in 2018 we had a whole host of teams not qualify from ghana and ivory coast in Africa, we had America not qualifying for the first time since the 80s, and of course Italy and the Netherlands, huge giants not qualifying in Europe, European qualification there. After this short break, we'll be returning home and we'll be looking at Tottenham Hotspur. Well, when the Spurs go marching in, Tottenham entered the 21st century in 6th position, 13 points behind leaders Leeds with a game in hand, and potentially... Champions League football on the horizon. Who would have thought it in 2000? They'd beaten Liverpool 1-0 for a Chris Armstrong goal and things were looking quite rosy for Spurs who hadn't won anything since 1999, but before that 1991 FA Cup. George Graham was into his second year as manager coming off the back of that League Cup win in 99. David Ginola dragging them to that particular trophy, but it all came crashing down. They lost four games out of five, all 1-0 against Chelsea twice, Sheffield Wednesday and the then league leaders Leeds. They'd win five games in the rest of the season and secured what was at that stage a quite typical mediocre 10th place for Spurs. They hadn't finished higher than 10th since 1996 and they wouldn't do the following season either. George Graham sacked for breach of contract in March 2001 and the next match would be, of course, the North London derby. And as they were doing this time, Spurs lost. The man to take over George Graham, though, was Glenn Hoddle, and Hoddle would steer Spurs into 12th place, but not before another North London derby loss, but it was a crucial North London derby loss as it helped steer Saul Campbell's decision-making in that summer as he was out of contract, Spurs losing to Arsenal in the FA Cup semi-final, and obviously Saul would go across North London to Arsenal. Glenn Hoddle was uh, in charge for quite some time, though, this, the second highest, uh, second longest tenured Spurs manager in the decade, obviously Hoddle would uh, would have been very successful for Spurs as a player in the 1980s and fans, obviously, with a tint of nostalgia thinking he could do the same from the dugout, but alas, it wouldn't. But they would break higher than 10th, and although their ninth position in the 2001-2 season could have been 7th if they had won their last match of the season at rock bottom Leicester, who had been relegated for quite some time. Hoddle, though, would get Spurs deep into both cup competitions. A highlight was a uh, a 5-1 thrashing against Chelsea. 
confirming a League Cup final in 2002 with the likes of Stefan Everson, Tim Sherwood, Teddy Sheringham, Simon Davies, Sergei Rebrov, all scoring to confirm that League Cup final. But it would be Graham Souness and the goals from Matt Janssen and Andy Cole to snatch that League Cup trophy away from White Hart Lane and to Ewood Park and to Blackburn. Spurs would have another shot at a trophy. But that 5-1 win against Chelsea in the League Cup would turn to a 4-0 home defeat to the same side in the FA Cup less than two months later. Chelsea, of course, would earn the right to lose to Arsenal in the final. Only Ray Parler and obviously the man leading the back line that day, Sol Campbell, part of the uh, League and Cup double winning team for Arsenal, while Spurs continued winning nothing. And there was quite a sharp... Evolving from Spurs, you had the uh, aforementioned likes of Everson, Sherwood, Sheringham. Names of the latter 90s, obviously Sheringham came back into the fold for the 2001-2 season. They would evolve into the likes of Robbie Keane, Jamie Redknapp, whilst Les Ferdinand, Tim Sherwood also left. Jermaine Defoe would come in after West Ham's relegation in 2003 also. Hoddle, though, would go out in the Cups early in the 2002-3 season and going into February 2003 after a 4-1 win, against uh, Sunderland. Tottenham was six points off Champions League football. So again, a glimmer of hope for Spurs fans with the likes of Chelsea, Everton, Liverpool and Charlton, as well as Spurs separated by just six points. 11 games to go, but it was another collapse. Spurs won just two games and in those they did need late, late goals. So it wasn't beyond belief that they would have gone the last 11 games without winning a single game. Gus Poyer's 88th minute winner against Birmingham in April and Robbie Keane's 85th minute winner against West Ham later on in the same month and losses to the likes of West Ham, Liverpool, Bolton, Manchester City, Manchester United, Middlesbrough and Blackburn meant a Spursy 10th place again and Hoddle, part of the uh, rejuvenation and sort of looking towards Europe came in the signs of Freddie Knute and Helder Postiga. Bobby Zamora also came in very, very briefly whilst the likes of Matty Everington, Stefan Everson, Teddy Sheringham left in the uh, summer of 2003. One win from the first six, and this transition period saw Hoddle sacked and replaced by interim David Pleat. Pleat won far before Christmas, uh, quickly, sn- quickly swapping Canute for Defoe, and I thought that Canute had a lot longer time in North London, but apparently not. By March the 14th, 2004, guess where Spurs were? Obviously, they were in 11th place, 10th place, sorry. Two points from the next eight saw Spurs shockingly in 16th place, but ultimately, though, they were fairly safe from relegation. Um, Two wins to end the season. Spurs had their tails between the legs in 14th place. Typically, Spurs, as the the saying goes. But they would uh, continue this transition towards the European side of things, appointing Jack Santini in the summer. Signings included British names such as Paul Robinson and Michael Carrick. Both would go on to be largely successful internationally and domestically. Michael Carrick more so than Paul Robinson, obviously. Paul Robinson, who would become England's number one around this time, usurping David James for that. And the continuation of the uh, transition meant the likes of Christian Zieger, Gus Poyer, Anderton, Darren Anderton and Stephen Carr left the club at that time. Helder Postiga's... uh, Brief spell would be over. He'd go to Porto and win everything. So <laughs> there you go. Daniel Levy switched uh, from the British approach to the continental side as he was now the main figurehead at the club. Spurs, it looked as it was uh, it was going quite well. They were undefeated in the first six before their first loss, a loss at home to Manchester United. 
and then a brief win against Everton looked to uh, give brief respite for the North London club, but it was followed by three losses in a row and a fourth against Charlton. And quickly, Jack Santini's reign was quickly over, resigning after 13 games after a fallout with the director of football at White Hart Lane, Frank Arneson, which left none other than Martin Yall, his assistant, to take over. And I seem to think at the time, very hazy memories of this as an 11-year-old, not really keeping on the uh, ins and outs of Tottenham... Uh, backroom politics, so to speak. I tend to think that Martin Yall's assignment was, uh, or appointment rather, was more of a temporary measure till the end of the season to get someone else in. But of course it wouldn't um, wouldn't be temporary, it would be extend far beyond that. And our memories, Harry Holland says of, in the 2000s, David Pleat, and of course the one of the best FA Cup ties in the 2000s, or perhaps of all time, the 4-3 loss at home to Manchester City and no more so apart from the 5-3 defeat to Manchester United in 2001 was the term, lads, it's Tottenham, better used. Uh, Spurs again taking a 3-0 lead into a second half against a Manchester club, again losing it. The dramatic John Macken goal in the last minute, so a great memory to have. Um, Alex J. Rhodes, another great friend of the podcast, says Martin Yall and his brothers called Dick and Cock. So continuing the theme there, Alex. And yeah, I mean, I can sort of get being called Dick, um, Cat really get being called cock i mean the cock is a semi popular surname in the netherlands and south africa where dutch is another language spoken in that country but yeah um martin Yol, one of the uh, probably the best manager pre harry redknapp for me we'll get on to that luch says um held a postiga being a spurs flop he remembers lasagna gate and he remembers players such as dimitar berbatov robbie Keane. Canute and the tight Thompson shirts and yeah for me the Thompson shirt is what I see when I uh, see Tottenham Hotspur in this era in the 2000s at least it is the uh, the sort of navy blue sleeves Thompson Robbie Keane wheeling away doing that uh, dramatic celebration that he does that's what I picture it's usually a a 1.30pm Sunday afternoon kickoff against a similarly mid-table club, let's say Tottenham versus Fulham or Tottenham Birmingham, and who there was that great goal that Robbie Keane scored where he sort of did like a pirouette and flicked it over somebody's head and then a knee and then a volley. I think it might have been in his debut. I'm not entirely sure about that one, but um, it it was around that time the Keane and Defoe partnership was bubbling away nicely. Obviously, Berbatov will come into that 2006-7 season. Great, great memories of that. Obviously, they would go on to be sponsored by. God, other things I, at the top of my head, can't remember. But those are the abiding memories. Keen Defoe, Thompson shirts that were very, very tight. I think it must have been Kappa. Kappa are the uh, geniuses when it comes to tight football shirts. And um, it, it's it, Italian shirts in particular. So let's go on to Martin Yol. Martin Yol's first match, what a way to be introduced to the uh, hot seat at White Hart Lane. A North London derby, of course. An absolute humdinger of a North London derby, 5-4. And this, I remember watching this, it, I think it was a Saturday lunchtime on Sky. I seem to think, yeah, Tottenham have got a team here. This was the first time it sort of clicked in my head as a as a young boy, 12-year-old, I must have been 11, 12, where I thought, oh yeah, Spurs have got a really good team here and could do something. And I think as a result, I think I might have developed a bit of a soft spot for them. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, Spurs losing run, though, continued to Villa Park on Monday Night Football after this, and their insane mediocrity continued 15th, two points safe. But 
Yol would get them going 20 points from the next 24 meant their future would look a bit rosier. They were 10 points off Champions League football, but were ultimately safe, which would have been the remit after quite a tumultuous start to the season. Six wins from seven around Christmas were followed up, though, by five in 17, and two ultimately quarterfinal defeats in Cups to Newcastle in the FA Cup, who would go on to lose to the mighty Manchester United in the semi-final, of course, in Cardiff, and uh, to Liverpool in the League Cup, who would, of course, go on to lose in the final to Jose Mourinho's Chelsea, his first trophy in England. Spurs would finish very Spursy in ninth, <laughs> continuing the theme from Glenn Hoddle, but things were on an upward trajectory, like they did seem to be with Glenn Hoddle before that experiment was cut short. The status quo continued into the summer of 2005. Y'all unveiled the likes of Tom Huddleston, Aaron Lennon, Jermaine Genus, Michael Dawson, Andy Reid. So he's quite a, despite taking a continental approach with the management and the tactics perhaps, there was a, an English car coming through, obviously, a British car coming through with Robbie Keane. Jermaine Defoe, Robbie Keane, technically not British, British Isles. And Edgar David's coming into for a bit of experience in the middle as well. Danny Murphy joining the uh, January after. And the table on Boxing Day 2005 had Spurs in the Champions League places on 34 points, ahead of Bolton and Wigan on 31. But more importantly, they were ahead of Arsenal by five points. Arsenal who a couple of seasons ago were invincible, now they're in seventh place and trailing their North London rivals embarrassingly by five points. But, of course, Bolton and Wigan would make way just purely because of the narrative and it had to be between Arsenal and Spurs, naturally. And going into the final day, Spurs were in fourth place. Arsenal hosted Wigan, Spurs travelled to West Ham, as we've uh, spoken of before on this podcast with the two draws in the uh, season it wasn't really the lasagna gate, quote-unquote lasagna gate, where Spurs lost that, losing to West Ham, of course, by Carl Fletcher and Yossi Benayoun goals there. It wasn't that match that was the crucial game. It was the two draws in the North London derby as Tottenham continued their winless streak in the derby from 99 up until 2010, when obviously Harry Redknapp ended that barren spell. It wouldn't be, obviously, the dodgy lasagna sauce, but a norovirus outbreak, which in 2006 seems quite novel, obviously, in 2020 and 2021, seemingly the norm. Um, a, te- a player tested positive for the virus, which presumably spread, and 10 players, depending on who you ask, I mean, some some uh, said there wasn't as much, some said there was more, Martin Yall, Daniel Levy, obviously, the uh, Daniel Camoli as well, went to uh, the Premier League and to Richard Scudamore for help and to try and postpone it. But obviously West Ham, who they were playing, they were to play in the FA Cup final against Le- uh, against Liverpool. And Arsenal had a Champions League final, of course, so there was no real way in the calendar, especially with the uh, World Cup coming up where they could have rearranged it. Spurs trying to get it postponed for seven o'clock, but they realised that West Ham and Spurs fans drinking for four more hours wouldn't be a great idea on a hot May afternoon. Either way, Spurs lost, Arsenal won. Spurs wouldn't play Champions League football under Yol and nor would they under the next man, Juan de Ramas. And his, despite his spell being quite horrific in so many ways, he would be the only man in the 2000s or in, in the 21st century <laughs> to win a trophy for Tottenham, obviously. They've got a chance to end that with another League Cup in a, in a month under Jose Mourinho, but obviously that is quite slim to bleak, slim to non kind of bleak prediction there that they could win that against obviously a quadruple hunt in Manchester City but anyway 
Martin Yol's 2006-07 season ended again in fifth, but the team in fourth obviously was Arsenal, and <laughs> as it was at the time, and the gap would be eight points. So it was long gone. Champions League football was quite slim. Uh, Yol would take them to several quarterfinals, losing in the uh, UEFA Cup to Sevilla, the eventual winner Sevilla, of course, at the time, to Chelsea in the FA Cup quarterfinals, and they got to the League Cup semi-final against Arsenal, losing, as we've charted on the show previously. That would be uh, remedied by Juan de Ramos the following season. And of course, Spurs would beat Chelsea in the final, their third League Cup final in a decade and their second win after the 5-1 thrashing at White Hart Lane over Arsenal in the second leg and Jonathan Woodgate's face in extra time at Wembley in the first League Cup final to be held at Wembley since 2000. Another t- mid-table finish was followed by two points from Ramos's first eight games and Tottenham were ultimately bottom of the table and engaged in a real relegation fight. And then, who do you save? Who do you call for when you need your club saving? No, it wasn't Sam Allardyce at this time. He had just been sacked by Newcastle and a man who was linked with Newcastle, as Jake Collinson says, that he finds it funny that Harry Redknapp left Portsmouth to manage to Southampton to only then return to Portsmouth later and to think that he could have become Newcastle manager. And he would have become Newcastle manager if he hadn't taken the Spurs job. And would Harry Redknapp have taken Newcastle into the Champions League? I'm thinking in particular that 2011-12 season. We might never, ever know. Maybe I'll do a what if. I say maybe. Of course, I'm going to do a what if on that. (laughs) So Harry Redknapp would save Spurs. They would uh, finish eighth that season. And then the Spurs, he finishes a fifth, missing out on the final day. The stereotypical mid-table, just scraping away from relegation. They would be banished under Redknapp. They'd finish fourth which guaranteed Champions League football after that Peter Crouch goal at Manchester City in one of the, in what is the closest we've ever got to a £20 million match. Obviously, the figures would be a lot larger for 2010, but uh, that's the closest we've got to a £20 million match to the final week. And final week of the season, I think it was a penultimate match, or the third from last match, where Tottenham went to Manchester and to the Etihad and won 1-0. Redknapp wouldn't follow that up, though. They'd finish fifth in 2011 and finish fourth in 2012, but fourth, of course, in 2012, thanks to that pesky Chelsea winning the Champions League, their first ever Champions League in Munich, that wouldn't guarantee Champions League football. And I think rather harshly, Harry Redknapp was sacked. Obviously, he had um, they were they were uh, going quite well in the in the Premier League until Fabio Capello was just sacked by England obviously to try to stick up for John Terry who the FA stripped of captaincy John Terry would uh, play in the year of 2012 Fabio Capella wouldn't manage in the year of 2012 and Harry Redknapp thought he had his eye on that England job the job that he that he'd craved all his career and sort of like got a bit distracted obviously fourth in any other season would have been Champions League football just ask Everton I mean kind of harshly for Spurs really the uh, rules were were changed from Everton's 2005 fourth place where they qualified and Liverpool in fifth who won the Champions League also qualified with them. UEFA kiboshed that. Spurs' fourth place. No Champions League for you and obviously Newcastle as well who Harry Redknapp could have managed finishing in fifth ahead of Chelsea in sixth who went on to win the FA Cup and Champions League double. Winning the FA Cup and on the way beat Spurs in the semi-final so a little... Uh, Double whammy there, Harry Redknapp sacked, and of course, Spurs went in a completely different direction. They got the foundations, and now Andre Villas-Boas was the manager going into the 2012-13 season. And 
Despite finishing fifth place, Villas-Boas got Spurs a Premier League record 72 points, which is more than the put the pressure on season in 2015-16, almost as much as the uh, season when they almost won the Premier League again, when Chelsea won it in 2017. 72 points, that was the season, of course, where Gareth Bale had that breakout season, and of course Arsenal finished above them in fourth. Round four of the FA Cup, the League Cup and quarterfinal in the Europa League meant that Villas-Boas was gone in December 2013, five points off the top four, another harsh sacking by Daniel Levy. And to bridge that gap between Villas-Boas and the ultimate saviour, Spurs' best manager of the 21st century, Mauricio Pochettino from Southampton, they would bring in a former player, as they did with Glenn Hoddle in the early part of the decade, and they'd bring in Tim Sherwood. Now, Tim Sherwood would like to tell you that he's the best Spurs manager, tongue-in-cheek, you'd have to, you'd hopefully have to admit, since he's got the best win rate of all Tottenham managers. He steered them to sixth place. They were out in the third round of the FA Cup, went out in the last 16 of the Europa League, so a marked step back, and he was gone, um, obviously, at the end. Of the, I think the uh, abiding memories, that celebration with Emmanuel Adebayor, also the... The memory of him allowing a fan who'd criticised him all season to sit in his spot in the dugout um, in the final day when nothing was resting on any result when under previous managers, under the likes of Redknapp, Villas-Boas and uh, Martin Yolle, it might have been. So obviously there needed to be a change in Poch, obviously. Changed the game, getting Spurs into a Champions League final, almost winning the league a couple of times and obviously almost winning a League Cup final, I think, in 2015. And obviously... Spurs have gone on to bigger and better things. The new stadium got the likes of... Uh, let's not forget that Tim Sherwood brought Harry Kane through the ranks, not Pochettino. So maybe he deserves some credit for that one after numerous loans away from the club. And obviously Sherwood gave Kane his debut at the age of 20. So maybe he's got that in his column as well. So after this short break, we'll be going to Serie A to the 2003-04 season. And the table, it never lies, does it? Right, we're going to Italy. The table never lies. And in 2003-04 season in the Serie A, it didn't lie then either. So 17 years ago today, there was eight matches to go in the Serie A season. You've got Milan on top with 67 points, nine ahead of Roma on 58 points and 11 ahead of Juventus, the defending champions, on 56. The likes of uh, Lazio on 42, Parma on 41, Inter on 40, Udinese on 39, and Sampdoria on 37th, ranging from 4th to 8th, were scrapping for that final Champions League spot, whilst the likes of Kiev on 31, Bologna 31, Brescia 28, and a clutch of clubs from Siena, Lecce and Reggiana, on, all on 27, were more concentrated on survival. Modena was in the uh, relegation playoff spot as Serie A was facing a restructuring, and they were on 25 points, whilst Empoli 23, Perugia 22, they would get relegated. They were in the relegation zone, sorry. Ancona were, were pretty much relegated, all by name. They were on seven points and hadn't won a single game all season. Their loss at home to Sampdoria on April 4th confirmed their status as the first relegated club and probably, I didn't go back and check the history books, probably the earliest relegated club in Serie A history. Following weekend though, with the shackles off, they finally got their first win, a fine time to do that. A 3-2 win against Bologna. And obviously they would go down and of course they would finish last on 13 points. With three matches remaining, Modena were on 30 points and seemingly safe. 
Reggiana were level in playoff position, whilst Empoli 27 and Perugia 23 were below the dotted line. Obviously, that would not be the way it finished, and quite dramatically. A 1-0 win for Perugia at home to Juventus kickstarted their rejuvenation, but there were still four points to make up to get into that playoff, and ultimately five for safety, because even with a playoff, you're still not guaranteed to uh, to retain your status at the end of the season. Empoli couldn't follow up their win against Bologna, drawing to Lecce. Meanwhile, Perugia had to go to the capital to play Roma, another difficult game. Roma had just given up the title, and Antonio Cassano had put the Giallo Rossi 1-0 up, but a Zemaria double helped Perugia to another dramatic win over a giant of Italian football, winning 3-1, whilst Reggiana's win against Milan, the new champions, newly confirmed champions, had them safe. Siena halted a slide with a win in Modena, which was a crucial battle, a crucial six-pointer at the bottom of the table, which left Modena and Empoli on 30 points, Perugia on 29. Empoli hosted into Milan, who needed a win, so they were still in a fight for Champions League football to confirm their Champions League status for the 2004-05 season. They had to play into Milan on the final day, whilst Modena travelled to Lazio, who had a glimmer of a shot, outside shot of Champions League football, should Inter Milan and should Parma lose. Both won, as did Lazio, which left Empoli definitely down on head-to-head beneath Modena. Modena, though, were hoping that Ancona could score a rare point away at Perugia at the least, as uh, Modena had a head-to-head advantage over Perugia. And of all players to score the goal to seal Perugia's place in the relegation playoff, I'll get, if, even if I gave you eternity, you wouldn't be able to guess this. It's Jay Bothroyd, the former Cardiff. I think he was a one-time England international as well. But anyway, so Perugia got the win against Ancona, 32 points. Moderna and Empoli down on 30, while Siena, Reggiana on 34 were safe. Bologna, 39, they were well safe. And Lecce, who scored a pretty impressive 11 points with four games to, with eight games to go, climbed up into relative mid-table. So, Perugia, thanks to the expansion of Serie A from 18 teams to 20, they would play Serie B's sixth-place team, which should have made things really, really easy considering the first five teams went up automatically. Now, just go through the back of football history, even recent football history, and look at the top five teams of the second-tier football teams, football divisions, You'd fancy your chances of sixth place against the sixth place team from Serie B, wouldn't you really? That should have made things a lot easier. Palermo, Cagliari, Livorno, Messina, Atalanta all went up automatically. But of course, sixth place would be Fiorentina, the sleeping giant themselves. They'd just been in the Champions League in 2000. Financial absolvency meant they would go down in relegation and had to rebuild a complete fresh. Meanwhile... It would be Enrico Fantini for Fiorentina, who scored the only goal in Perugia and the opener in Florence. Perugia dealt a harsh blow by being drawn, probably the biggest team in Serie B at that point in Fiorentina. And Fiorentina would come up, Perugia down. Ancona would suffer bankruptcy and plummet down the divisions after this. They dissolved in 2010, so no longer exist. Whilst in Serie B, from the uh, pool of teams in the 2003-04 season, we've got Empoli, we've got Reggiano, we've got Brescia and Lecce. Brescia and Lecce went down last season. Serie C, we've got Modena, Perugia and Siena. Now looking upwards, looking to the uh, top of the table, Juventus of course lost their title comfortably in third, joining Inter Milan in Champions League qualification. 
In the following season's Champions League campaign, both would make it through to the quarterfinals via wins over former champions in Porto and Real Madrid in Juventus's case. But Juventus would bow out to eventual winners Liverpool and Inter Milan got absolutely hampered by uh, their city rivals AC Milan. 5-0 on aggregate, I believe. And the fourth Italian representation in the Champions League that year was, of course, Roma, who finished with one point, a grand one point, in the uh, group stages. They confirmed the end of their title surge on May the 2nd of this season. They travelled to Milan in a crucial take, winner-take-almost-all winner match. Uh, the gap was at six points with three to play. A win for Roma, and they had Perugia and Sampdoria to play, whilst Milan had Brescia and Reggiana. It would make it interesting, however... The game was killed stone dead by Andrei Shevchenko, as he often did in this time, a Ballon d'Or winner this this year. Shevchenko scored within two minutes. Milan would win 1-0 and confirmed what is to date their second to final Scudetto. Obviously, it looked as though they would end that barren spell from 2011. But, obviously, Antonio Conte and his inevitable management sealed. Well, looks to be sealing into Milan's first league title since 2010 and the days of the treble and Jose Mourinho. Memories from this season, or rather memories from Italian football from around the time come from Joe, who claims he still can't believe how AC Milan wouldn't go on to win the Champions League against Liverpool. Of course, Milan were one of the prevailing teams at the time. If you look at their lineup from the 2005 Champions League final, it's just a thing of beauty. It's like littered from legends right from the top to bottom you've got Kaká, you've got Shevchenko well not Inzaghi Crespo you've got Perlo Gattuso <laughs> you know I mean these Stan Maldini Cafu Dida is the team that was built on football manager it seems and they still didn't win it of course they would obviously win the Champions League a year a couple of years prior in 2003 a couple of years after in 2007 uh, Lee mentions the legend that is Paolo Maldini being the greatest defender of all time and I'd definitely stick him in my top three. I think I'd have Franz Beckenbauer at the top. Maybe Bobby Moore, maybe. Um, but yeah, perhaps uh, Paolo Maldini, obviously a winner of five Champions Leagues right from the 1989-1990 Arrigo Saki days right through to the Carlo Ancelotti wins in 03 and 07. Meanwhile, in the middle region of the table, we've got Parma, Lazio and Udinese making up Italy's representation in the UEFA Cup for the 2004-05 season. Sadly, we don't have an Intertoto Cup segment this week. But whilst Italy was strong in the Champions League, only Parma remained in the knockout phase in the UEFA Cup for the 2004-05 season. Parma would beat Stuttgart, they'd beat Sevilla, they'd beat Austria-Vienna and make the semi-finals shades of the good old days for Italian football and for good old days for Palmer, obviously winning the uh, 1995 and 1999 UEFA Cups, but it would be more 1994 Cup Winners' Cup when they lost that to Arsenal, as they lost 3-0 on aggregate to CSKA Moscow, shockingly, the Russian club beating Sporting Lisbon in the final again, shockingly, to win their UEFA Cup. And after this short break, we'll round things off with a 2000s trivial tease where we had just one correct answer this week. Welcome back. Yes, our answer last week was a centre-forward by the name of Nikola Zigic. And congratulations to friend of the show, Jake Collinson, for that. Lelouch almost had it with Tom Cleverley there. I think he must have seen the uh, Mata and Vidic 
because they were one of the two of the players in that our teammates section, rounded off by David Silva, Pablo Hernandez, and Matt Derbyshire. He wasn't a Spanish player. He wasn't a Manchester United player. It was, of course, Nikola Zigic, who'd played with Mata at Valencia, and David Silva at Valencia, Pablo Hernandez, of course. Nemanja Vidic, he'd play for, obviously, international level with Serbia. And Matt Derbyshire, I haven't got the foggiest clue. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote these notes. Anyway, he's obviously managed by Kike Sanchez-Flores and Ronald Koeman. We're sticking with a centre-forward this week. A centre-forward who's been managed by Jose Mourinho, or Jose Mourinho, and Gus Hiddink. He's played alongside Dejan Stankovic, Claude Makalele, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Fernando Torres and Martin Petrov. A couple of legends in there. Our centre-forward this week is Jose Mourinho. He's been managed by Gus Hiddink. He's played alongside Dejan Stankovic, Claude Makalele, Ruud van, van Nistelrooy, Fernando Torres and Martin Petrov. If you think you know the answer, tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube. Or just shout at me in the street if you recognise my voice here in West Yorkshire anyway. So we'll be back next week with the answer to that one. And on episode 35 next week, we're going to chart at the... Rise and fall of Leeds United in European football will be looking at their Champions League run in 2001. Staying in the Champions League since it's going to be quarterfinal week soon. We've got Deportivo's miraculous comeback against AC Milan in the 2003-04 season. And we're coming back home to England in the table never lies for the rise of the special one in 2004-05. Elsewhere, over there on YouTube, we'll be looking at the 1997 UEFA Cup final taking a look at World Cup Golden Boot winners we'll be staying around in the World Cup for a what if we'll be also looking at Paul Scholes Arsene Wenger Marco Royce Kaos Puyol Paolo Maldini and we've got a nice little review of PES 5 perhaps the best ever football game let me know on Twitter at what if underscore YouTube on YouTube we've got what ifs and more such as throwback Thursdays fantasy fiver sides ranked video game reviews biography of football We'll be keeping it here on Acast, on Spotify, on Apple, on our podcast feed for the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast. Maybe a few bits more in the coming weeks. Maybe we'll have a few um, season reviews of the 2020-2021 season. The season lost to coronavirus almost. And maybe a few more weekly pilots for our podcast, which is coming at the end, at the start of next season. All that and more. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, give us a follow, give us a subscribe on the podcast feed, wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, a lovely little five-star review to boost the algorithm so more people can see what we are, what content we're trying to produce here at What If Football. If you like what you see, do all those things and return next week for the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, among other things. Until then, see you Podcast Network.